0: Tonight, uh, as you know, our topic is analyzing transformative change in the Arab world. Uh, A topic which I think is in the absolute forefront of nearly all Americans interested in American foreign policy. And uh, it's a subject upon which few are sufficiently well informed and on which the press, I think, slowly, item by item, begins to unravel the complicated situation. Uh, But we're so fortunate to have with us tonight uh, one of the Americans who is uh, best informed and most knowledgeable about the Arab world. Uh, Dr. Anthony has spoken to the Council as you know on a number of occasions. First in 1987 and uh, I remember vividly his, his presentation Uh, in the late fall of 1990 where he articulated the set of reasons why we shouldn't go beyond uh, uh, agreed upon objectives, i.e. we shouldn't go to Baghdad and it was a comprehensive list which I thought were convincing then, nicely presented, and haven't been improved upon I believe historically since that time. It was a marvelous presentation. Everybody in their hearts has a stronger feeling than that, I know. That's a, <laughs> but it was a nice sentiment. Uh, in any case, Dr. Anthony's uh, shared his time with us very generously on a, a large number of occasions, and we're grateful to him for, uh, for that. Uh, he's a graduate of the Vermil- uh, Virginia Military Institute, degree in history, master's degree from Georgetown in, uh, uh, foreign, in the Foreign Service, and uh, a PhD from Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in International uh, uh, and Middle East Studies. Uh, He's written several books, as you probably all know, uh, including uh, one on the lower Gulf states, uh, People, Politics, and Petroleum, which is well known and highly regarded. And he's written, interestingly enough, on uh, the United uh, uh, Emirates and uh, the formation of states, the theory of formation of states, which again is very apropos of today's uh, set of of crises. Um, He is interested, appreciative, and a leader within the community that tries to serve the interests of U.S.-Arab relations. He's founded and served on the board of numerous uh, major organizations dedicated to encouragement of diplomacy in the area, and education with respect to the region within the United States, and is one of those that uh, uh, worked on the, the commission for the uh, uh, commemoration of the 14th uh, centennial of Islam, uh, that I mentioned that especially because it represents an ongoing and uh, deep respect for that community. And it's one of the reasons, I'm sure, that in terms of the, the Arab community's respect for Dr. Anthony, he's the only American, or I should say the only uh, non-Arab, who has been invited to all of the uh, heads of state summits held by the Gulf Coordination uh, Cooperation Council since its uh, inception in 1981. Uh, it's a... Uh, close relationship, which suggests the kind of expertise that he brings uh, to us tonight. He's taught, of course, at SICE. He's taught at the University of Virginia, uh, Pennsylvania and Texas and the major defense colleges here in the United States. He's been a consultant and uh, lecturer at the Department of State and the Department of Defense. And he's received uh, distinguished service awards from both of those uh, instruments of the government. He's been the scholar escort on numerous uh, uh, trips of the uh, Central Command and its senior officers to the Middle East. He's just returned recently from a trip there and has been there for three weeks. And he certainly uh, knows as well as what's going on and what's being said within Washington today. So this is a, uh, a great privilege. We're very fortunate. I look forward to it. With great interest, it's my pleasure to pre- uh, present Dr. John Duke Anthony.
1: Thank you, Frank. One of the nicest experiences in anyone's uh, adult life and professional career is to be introduced by Dr. Frank Byrd. <coughs> he has been a mainstay, a fi- fixture of this. Baltimore Council on Foreign Affairs uh, since as long as I've been aware of it and uh, the building of the membership and the obtaining of uh, corporate and philanthropic uh, support and the esteem that it it enjoys in the larger community of the American private sector dealing with uh, issues of America's relations in the world beyond our shores has had an enormous uh, input and comment uh, from him in terms of making these kinds of events uh, available for the general public. And though he didn't mention all of the upcoming events, uh, I looked at the list of those that have been confirmed, and that they have been confirmed is its additional uh, testimony to the vibrancy of of your membership and the seriousness with which you undertake this educational mission. I've been asked to to focus on a rather vast region and a topic, a phenomenon, a force and a factor that's affecting pretty much the entire region, although differently in each and every case. We remain a planet of nation states. We're talking about the Arab world being comprised of 22 countries that are nationally sovereign, politically independent, and for the most part, uh, territorially intact. And this region is seen in terms of America's national interest more often than not, I think, and I'm trying to be candid, as an object, something to be avoided (laughs) in the view of many, something to be manipulated in the terms of some others, something to be influenced, something to be controlled, something to be cajoled, uh, something to have a strategic advantage from and as much economic gain as is possible. It is all of that, but this is also a region whose peoples and leaders and elites and interest groups and grassroots ordinary citizens insist, like we insist, on also being viewed as actors, actors with their own legitimate needs, their own legitimate concerns, their own legitimate rights, (coughs) their own legitimate objectives. Uh, in association with their friends with their partners uh, with their strategic allies and we are counted as the friend partner and strategic ally of the overwhelming majority of the arab countries there are of course exceptions but exceptions are just that exceptions and this is a region where most americans for perhaps the longest time have viewed these uh, as gas stations, not as countries, as uh, mountains of money, as opposed to the descendants of one of the planet's richest uh, cultures and civilizations, one that has profoundly and massively and pervasively influenced our own culture and civilization. We're proud, and rightly so, to frequently underscore that we are the products of the Judeo-Christian culture and we are, but that's only two-thirds of the truth. We are also the heirs and the descendants of the Judeo-Christian Islamic culture and civilization and far more so from the third I just mentioned than most American schoolchildren and adults are aware. Indeed from 711 to 1492 Arabic was the language of research and development Arabic was the language of science and technology. Arabic was the language (coughs) of medicine and astronomy and pharmacology and much else in the way of modernization and development. Indeed, for four times as long as we've been a country, so our indebtedness uh, to this particular region is, is massive and deep and multifaceted. There are those who are of the view that in this particular region where The second kind of oil is taking place, turmoil, (laughs) and and that other kind, would be of no interest or value to the body politic in the United States uh, were it not for fossil fuels, for hydrocarbon energy resources. Uh, I am one that strongly (laughs) and vociferously disagree with that. Uh, Even in the absence of that particular uh, facet of reality and our benefit from it, the mutuality of benefit, the reciprocity of reward that is rooted in that particular commodity and our relationship with it, would still be of enormous importance and significance and relevance to America's dreams, aspirations, needs, concerns, and interests. Just ponder the sheer geography of the region from Morocco to Muscat, from Baghdad to Berbera, from Algiers to Aden, and Aleppo in between. And the unavoidability of having to transit its airspace and its sea space in terms of going from east to west and west to east, and to a great extent as well from north to south and south to north. Then ponder as well, that this is the realm in which the world's three monotheistic faiths are rooted and were born and built in terms of jews christians and muslims this was the cradle of culture the center of civilization the anvil of antiquity the source of sunshine on the classical world uh, the epicenter of prayer and pilgrimage of faith and spiritual (coughs) devotion fully half of humanity and none of what I just <coughs> said had anything to do with, with oil or geography as, as such. In addition, in terms of the last of the three monotheistic faiths, we're talking about 1.6 billion Muslims worldwide. We're talking about 350 Arabs, Arab Christians as well as Arab Muslims and Arab Jews as well. It is impossible for me to conceive or perceive how the United States can endlessly live in a situation of antagonism and anger and aggravation (coughs) for fully one-fifth of humanity. In addition to those aspects of it are the profound and increasingly influential and impactful role that many Arab countries undergoing this tumult this turmoil, this turbulence, have in terms of international organizations. Indeed, if one, thank you, ponders but two of them, Saudi Arabia and Egypt, Saudi Arabia is a founding member of the United Nations, a founding member of the International Monetary Fund, a founding member of the World Bank, a founding member of the International Court of Justice, a founding member of the Organization of the Islamic Conference – 57 countries–a founding member of the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, a founding member of the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries, a founding member of the Gulf Cooperation Council, and many others. And Egypt almost as many in terms of its formative influence in the diplomacy, in the leadership, in the management, in the staff, in the programs, in the projects, in the events, in the activities of all of these international organizations that affect our lives and the rest of those in the planet. Coming to what has been happening in the last three months, I think should italicize, neonize, and capitalize a need amongst all of us for a substantial dose of humility. I don't know of anyone in this room who who predicted what would happen in the way that it happened. And our knowledge uh, of this particular region, its cultures, its peoples, its beliefs, its practices, its institutions, its interests, its customs, its mores, its moral principles, its uh, ethical precepts, is tinier than minuscule in terms of what is required <coughs> for ourselves to do ourselves justice and trying to make sense of what the region is and what it is not, what it's going through at the present time, and what are likely to be the prospects of what its peoples are going through. There are three aspects of what is occurring in this transformation, this turmoil, and this tumult. They are economic, social, and political, and from where I view the situation, it's in that order of progression with a few exceptions there. What is it that is in common with those in Tunisia, and Egypt, and Jordan, and Syria, and Yemen, and Bahrain, and Saudi Arabia, and Doman, and Libya, all the places where the uh, people have taken to the streets where the voice of the people or public empowerment has been uh, taking uh, place. Uh, At the risk of being impressionistic and superficial but trying to paint a glue, a piece of lubricant or adhesive that links them all together whether they're monarchies, whether they're republics, whether they're the result of a Revolutionary Command Council and uh, free military officers that seized power uh, some time ago. At the core of them all as I see it (coughs) are elemental issues of human dignity. In a way one can say that this is the third historical Arab revolt in modern history. Uh, The first one was in World War I against the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman Turks. And the second one was after the Second World War for most, although in the case of Iraq and Egypt before World War II, in terms of their anti-colonial and anti-imperial independence movements from one end of the region to the other. Indeed, when the United Nations was founded, there were only five Arab countries that were nationally sovereign politically independent and territorial intact. So they have been able to add 17 uh, to those five to the current uh, number of 22. Uh, This I would submit, and I'm not alone in this, is the third Arab revolt. But more than any of the others, more than the two previous combined, this one has more of the makings of true self-determination. This one has the characteristics of a devotion to better governance, less corruption, greater accountability, more respect in administration and applicability of the rule of law than either of the uh, previous two. Notice I did not use the word democracy or democratization. Uh, This word is used much in the region oftentimes it's used hoping that Americans will hear it uh, because people in the region are not all born in a remote village. And they are aware that democratic processes, democratic ideas and ideals and institutions and principles and ethos are very dear to the American uh, people. So this is an additional reason why you're hearing it so much. Uh, but if we end up ourselves as we have done before elsewhere and in this region uh, also uh, dictating, predicting, pressing, imposing, uh, stating that we will ex- nothing less than an American defined definition of what is happening in the realm of political pluralism uh, we're in to self-inflicted wounds to a greater extent than has been the case in the past. Indeed, in this century, we have been seen as willing even to impose our values, impose our processes, impose our systems, impose our institutions, and look at what it has gotten us in the places where we have tried that. I'm hard pressed uh, to name an unadulterated uh, success uh, for the efforts there. This places us in a quandary. We find ourselves in a dilemma. Uh, We are wedded uh, to the principles in our own constitution, and the four for which we exist as a country and a government, having to do with ensuring and enhancing the domestic safety, ensuring and enhancing the external defense, ensuring and enhancing the material well-being of our citizens, and ensuring and enhancing the applicability in the administration of a peaceful, civil, and effective system of justice. These four are the principles upon which our own country was established, and yet have been imperfectly accomplished and incompletely achieved in the years since. We continue to see this region consistently or extensively uh, through the lenses of three things. One is through the aftermath of 9-11, 2001 in terms of terrorism. We perceive it in terms of of Israel and an unflinching uh, support for the Jewish state. And three, we also perceive it in terms heavily colored by Saudi Arabia and other oil producing uh, countries. Uh, These are our lenses, these are our prisms and we judge these countries and peoples and their policies and their positions and their actions and their attitudes in terms of how they measure up to our values, our principles, our goals, our interests, our stated needs, our pronounced uh, concerns. And here in a nutshell is where much of the grievance is rooted. Whatever happened to the golden rule in terms of not do unto others that which you would not have others do unto you? We would not brook for a moment. We would abhor the efforts of any other peoples or countries or governments or leaders or political forces uh, to try to dictate or re-engineer or impose upon or lecture and be pompous and pontificating and sermonizing uh, what we are, what we are not, and what we should be and what we could be. And so the other half of the Golden Rule uh, faces us with an extraordinary challenge because we tend to find it irresistible to interfere, uh, to intrude, uh, to try to judge people in terms of our standards, not other people's standards in addition to air standards there. And so the challenge uh, for us in as we look at Tunisia and Egypt, as we look at Yemen and Bahrain, as we look at Saudi Arabia, Oman, and Jordan and Syria, is to try perhaps for the first time and why not have it be the first effective time uh, to be patient, to not rush, to not push for fast and effective elections If we do that, we will sow or reap that which we sow in terms of individuals far more unpalatable to what we would like to see in terms of governance and political leaders in countries beyond our shores. We have a situation where, for the most part, if we push too fast in countries like Egypt and Tunisia and elsewhere, where there's not a well-established, deeply-rooted, and multifaceted system of political pluralism in political parties, guess who is likely to win the elections? Political parties do not meet weekly. To my knowledge, they don't meet monthly. To my knowledge, they don't meet quarterly. But religiously-inspired individuals meet weekly. You have 52 opportunities to rejuvenate to inject the adrenaline, uh, to enthuse and to infuse kinds of ideas and orientations uh, that many Americans would find unsettling. And so the faster we encourage these elections and constitutional amendments and reforms to occur, and the more we press, the likely we are to regret and resent and rue the day in terms of the results. This will entail that we also allow the peoples and leaders in these seven or eight Arab countries to do it their way in a Frank Sinatra-esque mode of behavior. This is what happened in the case of Tunisia and also in Egypt. Indeed this is the first time in the last 32 years that there has been a revolution in the region that owes nothing to the West or the East or the North or the South in terms of the individuals involved doing it in accordance with their own interests, needs, concerns and values and through their own belief systems and, and, and norms and, and institutions. Were we to do the opposite of what I'm implying here would deprive those who we want to see prevail or succeed of ownership of what it is that they seek to have transpired and this will entail uncharacteristic discipline and self-negation on the part of uh, our leadership. Uh, I believe we have the capability to do it and we have the propensity to do it and there's a necessity to do it because of our being overstretched as it is internationally in this part of the planet. And it is as well because of our being understretched here nationally and domestically in terms of the domestic concerns and issues involving America's debt, America's infrastructure, America's educational system where we were recently ranked 27th out of 27 in terms of proficiency in math and science. And these aspects are also of a $14 trillion national deficit uh, that cannot continue. So the domestic aspects of this also dictate uh, that we not be as prone to interfere and intrude as has been the case in the past. Now As in terms of the commonality of the protesters' grievances, complaints, demands, anger, aggravation, alienation, they consist in the economic sense of the following. More than anything else, the element of human dignity (laughs) associated with having a job, being employed. (laughs) I'm not sure how many people here this evening are unemployed, have no job. I'm aware that there are a number, there always are, of people who had a job and performed it well and have retired and now are amongst America's appreciated senior citizens. Uh, But for those who have not experienced what it is like (coughs) not to have a job and to look oneself in the mirror (coughs) each day and try to have the requisite minimum sense of self-respect and (coughs) self-esteem. And if one is unmarried, to think, to figure out, to ponder, how can I get married? Who will marry me without a job? And how can I begin to have a family, start a family? And how can I begin to assure my spouse that we will have access to affordable housing? Those needs and concerns run throughout all of the ones that I listed earlier, seven or eight there, in the wealthy countries and the unwealthy countries, in the ones that have no energy resources to name or speak of, and those who have an abundance of energy resources. Subsets of that have to do with An alienation of the tendency to hire foreigners rather than citizens or nationals because foreigners work for perhaps a third the wage or the material gain of what a national or citizen would demand. The inadequacy of the educational system both in the pre-collegiate level and the university level in terms of courses that seem to not be market oriented or for whatever the enrichment from the arts and the sciences and the social sciences these are not employable degrees or skills a raising of the minimum wage and even introducing in some places a minimum wage is a basic uh, demand in addition the issues of the uses to which public monies are put. Uh, There is an echo chamber here in terms of more rigid auditing and accounting, more public dissemination of the findings of audits, related closely to issues of corruption, uh, which is also a common theme throughout uh, all seven of the countries we're focusing on here some countries leaders uh, have dismissed their entire cabinet some have ignominiously removed from positions of preeminence of power and prestige and prominence individuals who for 35 to 40 years have served the country but served themselves and their cronies and their progeny as well in the provis- process as opposed to being public servants uh, who lived in terms of their salary and their bonuses there. These are the uh, main issues uh, with regard to accountability and transparency, uh, rule of law, and those are on the economic side. On the political side is what you're seeing, a demand to have one's voice heard Uh, to have input into uh, one's system of of governance, uh, to have an impact on the opinion formulation, the policy formulation, and the decision-making of issues that pertain to people's uh, destinies there. On the social aspect, uh, we are seeing perhaps the greatest of the components of this revolution in terms of something for which the West can indeed uh, take credit, although indirectly, in terms of technology, in terms of information technology in particular, in terms of how easy it has been to mobilize and deploy thousands of people uh, identifying uh, with uh, the issues, especially of the youth. Uh, Relatively few of the elderly have been involved in these Uh, demonstrations except uh, by the inspiration of wanting to be with their daughter or son or niece or nephew and being carried along with the euphoria of public empowerment on a scale uh, not seen in my lifetime in the region and not seen in the lifetime of the peoples uh, in the regions uh, themselves however much of this is in the realm of raising expectations and aspirations. And I don't see the economic ones being met in the near term or the midterm. And so we're likely to see something far messier than we have already seen. You cannot force a private sector employer uh, to hire only citizens. You can control, you can coerce, you can incentivize, you can issue calls for patriotism, but it doesn't work here in Baltimore and it doesn't work in the nation's capital and it doesn't work in any American uh, center of economic uh, enterprise of which I'm aware and so this aspect of demanding a job, demanding employment demanding the dignity that comes from having a job I believe will be proven to be elusive in the dismay, in the aftershock, in the despair Uh, will be enormous and unpredictable in its effect uh, when it comes. Particularly so in Tunisia. Particularly so in Egypt. Egypt graduates 500,000 high school students every year for whom a job has to be found. They do not exist. Tunisia is no different except on a smaller scale, in terms of the millions of people from Tunisia and Libya and Morocco and Algeria in southern Europe and beyond. And Algeria has not yet shown itself to be in the ranks of those that we've been focusing on, but it's coming. Uh, Algeria has seldom had less than 40 percent unemployment since it obtained its independence in 1962 at a cost that left one out of eight and a half Algerians in orphaned in their independence struggle from 1954 to 1962. Tunisia is much better situated in the sense that no Arab country gave birth to, built, sustained, and had as effective a trade union movement. As did, trade, uh, as did Tunisia. And no women anywhere in the Arab world have gained as early and long ago uh, the rights uh, that women in Tunisia have gained. And so Tunisia is blessed with a degree of civil society and past achievement in terms of human rights, gender rights, and civil rights uh, that arguably exceed those of any of the other countries in the Arab world. And Egypt, likewise, is rich in terms of civil society, but not necessarily in terms of political dynamics or its system of governance. You have a situation where the armed forces in Egypt have been much and rightly praised for their reluctance to fire on their own people. Partly based in the fact that almost every Egyptian family has someone in Egypt's armed forces, but partly also because of the years since Camp David in 1979. The United States and the Egyptians have bivouacked together in the tens of thousands. America's largest annual, regular, not annual, set of maneuvers and joint exercises anywhere in the world have been with Egypt and Egyptians uh, for the last 30 some years. And so the notions of civil control of the military and respect for human rights, gender rights, civil rights has perhaps been most deeply installed and instilled in the officer corps of Egyptian armed forces. Egypt as well, unlike Tunisia, vastly unlike Syria or Morocco or Saudi Arabia or Yemen, which we're coming to, uh, is a policeman's dream and a policewoman's dream. Ninety-six percent of the entirety of the Egyptian people live on only four percent of the land, on the banks of the Nile. And this has ever been thus in terms of Egypt being, as Herodotus wrote, the gift of the Nile. It is unlike, therefore, Iraq, unlike Algeria, unlike Saudi Arabia, unlike Iran, unlike the United States, unlike the Soviet Union, unlike Brazil, unlike Argentina, in terms of Egypt's ability to muddle through, to remain secure, to remain relatively stable, despite the odds, despite the massive unemployment, despite the pervasive uh, (coughs) poverty. 40% of Egypt's uh, citizens. Uh, Moving east to the Arabian Peninsula and the Gulf, uh, the two greatest challenges are those of Bahrain and Yemen, but in quite radically different ways. In the case of Bahrain, it has to do with wrongful discrimination. Seventy-five percent of Bahrain's population, up until the last ten years, has been Shia. Up until the change of regime in Iraq, there were but three countries in the world uh, where the Shia were – two – where the Shia were in the majority, but did not run the government. Iraq was one. Bahrain was one. Now, there's only Bahrain. And in the case of Iraq, it was sixty percent who were Shia. Case of Bahraini was seventy-five percent. It is now down to around sixty-five to sixty-eight percent. Why? Because of the government's policy of naturalizing foreigners who are Sunnis to redress that extraordinary imbalance. And so Jordanians, and Syrians, and Pakistanis and Baluch in particular amongst the Pakistanis have been granted citizenship easily in Bahrain to redress that balance. And most of the police force is non-Bahraini. The armed forces, the defense establishment is overwhelmingly, uh, but there are very few of that 68 percent of the population in those positions. Almost none in the aviation sector, none in the customs collection, none in the airport screening sector, none in the immigration and naturalization sector. And this is not new. This has been the situation for the last 60-some years. In the early 1950s, Bahrain had the first Arab census. And on the ballot was, are you Sunni or Shia? They have not put that question on the ballot since. Even then, the Shia were in the majority and looked around and said, we haven't one judge, one doctor, one surgeon, one dentist, one elementary school teacher, one secondary school teacher, uh, uh, principal, excuse me, the S and D there, the, the teachers. And they took to the streets in the 50s. Bahrain had martial law, emergency law from 53 to 56 and it has reinstituted martial law repeatedly since then. This happens to be where the United States has the headquarters of its fifth fleet. This happens to be where the United States has its forward deployed and mobilized military uh, headquarters. So you can see the implications of the ongoing stick of dynamite and explosive circumstances in Bahrain. Go to the other end of Arabia, to Yemen. Yemen's population is equal to all six of the Gulf Cooperation Council countries of Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, Oman, and Saudi Arabia. And yet inside of Yemen is the one place that is more massively and pervasively poor than any country I've ever been to in my life. With the close runner up being Haiti in our own uh, hemisphere here. Uh, but Bahrain, for any of you who've lived or worked there, as I have, uh, would r- recognize uh, the difficulty of fixing its economic woes. I cannot see the best leader, the most brilliant leader, uh, solving Yemen's uh, economic woes. Ponder the following. Yemen has 130,000 villages of fewer than 200 people. you have fewer than 200 people in a village, you have no electricity, you have no running water, you have no sewage, you have no hospital, you don't have a clinic. You don't even have a graded road, let alone a paved road. And so the economic aspirations of the Yemenis are real and valid. Most of the media that I've been reading has talked in terms of Yemen having no substantial civil society, Yemen having no political pluralism, Yemen having no freedom of speech. I have been an observer for all four of Yemen's presidential and parliamentary elections 93, 97, 2001, 2006. Uh, all of them were judged by the international observers of which I was but one as open and transparent, just a grade below free and fair, and not that much different from what used to be the elections in a place called Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dr. Bird mentioned in his introductory remarks uh, that... Uh, I was the only uh, Fulbright fellow uh, accepted into the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen. Southern Yemen, which is the geographic aspect of it, was indeed the Arab and Islamic world's only Marxist-Leninist country and government as such. Uh, And yet in 1990, it joined with northern Yemen in an arrangement that would come to haunt very quickly. That is to say, the people of southern Yemen are one seventh as numerous as those in northern Yemen. And yet, they dealt a strong hand. They demanded that they have half of everything. And the north agreed. They had half the cabinet post, and the ones that they didn't have, they had the deputy or the undersecretary of that particular cabinet post there. The analogy is somewhat like Sudan in terms of the price to end the civil war in Sudan between the North and the South, the South having only 15% of the country's population. The South demanded half of the country's entire oil revenues in the North in order to end the civil war, which is almost a quarter of a century agreed to it. Now look what happened in terms of its unraveling you have an entirely different country in terms of southern Sudan. As a result of what uh, southern Yemen was able to achieve, when it stood for elections in 1993, it only got 22% of the vote. But it still demanded that it keep 50% of the power. In terms of 1997, they claimed fraudulent, graft, corruption and say we are going to boycott these elections. The real reason was they would not have gotten more than 9% of the vote. And so the boycott was a facade in that case. I would posit that Yemen has had more free elections, greater freedom of the press, and greater evidence of civil society than all of the rest of Arabia combined. Now you've asked me here to, to share some views That's my view uh, from having lived and worked there. I don't see that reflected in our media. In terms of Saudi Arabia, the lens and the prisms have to be different. Here we're talking about a Vatican state. That's the analogy. Just as in the Vatican state, no matter how modernized and liberal and academic or intellectual the pope may be, it's always still a pope, never a mope. There are no male cardinals amongst the cardinals to my knowledge, no cardinalesses as as such. And it is not that the individual popes and the cardinals uh, are themselves uh, retrograde and arch-conservative and counter-revolutionary. They have a self anointed, appointed role as the guardians of the traditions of the faith. It is the same with Saudi Arabia. And just as the Vatican State is likely to be the last in the least, if ever, to uh, liberalize its views on abortion or premarital sex, uh, likewise Saudi Arabia is to be the last in the least uh, that would say well uh, a gin and tonic every now and then in public uh, uh, wouldn't kill anybody and you can still be a good Muslim while sipping uh, that uh, gin and tonic. There, uh, they will be the last in the least in terms of their self-anointed, appointed uh, uh, role there. And so the, there, the idea of protest and demonstrations is a non... It's not a non-starter as an idea, uh, but in terms of uh, actuating it and applying it and practicing it, uh, its prospects for success are tinier than menisculable. Uh, but not least because of the reforms uh, that the current incumbent head of state, King Abdullah, has initiated, if truth be known, in part, in substantial measure, through the urging of the United States in the aftermath of America's role in Desert Shield and Desert Storm and the 34 countries that comprise the internationally concerted action uh, that reversed Iraq's aggression. Uh, that the American public would not stand to mobilize and deploy again uh, to this particular part of the region were it not to see reforms, were it not to see opportunities for increased popular participation in the national development uh, process. And so Saudi Arabia has a National Consultative uh, Council since 1994. They are all appointed and they are all men However, there are numerous women advisors on issues and they sit in on the sessions having to do with family and gender issues and, and youth and, and children's uh, issues. They started out with 60, now they are up to 120 members. The majority of the first batch of the 60 had gotten their PhDs, not their degree, their PhDs from the United States. Indeed, every day, every minute since 1975, in Saudi Arabia's cabinet, there have been more American-trained PhDs than there are PhDs trained anywhere. In the American cabinet, the Senate, the Supreme Court, and the House of Representatives combined. (laughs) There are no Americans, to my knowledge, who have obtained their degree in Saudi Arabia, although its universities have been open to their enrollment and registration. So there's an imbalance in terms of ignorance and arrogance on both sides in terms of how little we know of the region and its peoples and its processes. I'm not touched on Syria. I'm not touched on Jordan. As Syria, in my view, will remain in an authoritarian mode vis-a-vis itself and vis-a-vis its uh, neighbors. We can discuss this in the Q&A period. In the case of Jordan, you have an impending, greater degree of turbulence than I think we have seen thus far. And you will see greater aspects of it in Egypt as well. Why? Because the elections are for September. And I can even from here on April the 13th, see in here the egyptian candidates trying to outdo each other in terms of calling for revisiting the separate peace treaty with israel in terms of september from another perspective this is the annual meeting of the united nations general assembly and it is this year where the issue of the united nations addressing recognition of a state of palestine will come to a vote in the same month. And it's nearly two-thirds of Jordan's citizens, their ancestral origins are Palestine. People refer to them sometimes as Jordestinians. So this is what is coming as I see it. I would love to be proven wrong. Let me stop here. Thank you.
0: We thank you enormously for that. The floor is now open for questions.
1: This, the second question could be answered. The same answer would be uh, the long answer and the short answer. Would Saudi Arabia erupt? The answer is no. Um, in terms of uh, Libya, uh, this is one of the more complex, and I'm glad you raised it, sir, and uh, I certainly uh, cannot fathom a coherent or clear prognosis or assessment of the situation there. However, uh, there is the anti-imperial, anti-Western, anti-colonial uh, ethos in, in, um, in Libya. Um, maybe some of us are too young or too old to remember uh, that uh, prior to World War I, uh, what Italy's designs were on Libya were rapacious and this was before mussolini became the prime minister 20 years uh, later there and so the legendary arab hero of omar muqta is a libyan uh, there and there's a chair uh, endowed in his name at georgetown uh, university down the road there uh, up until it discovered uh, fossil fuels it's hard to believe that a country this vast had as its major export the shell casings of World War II that had been left in the desert, okay? It's also a country where the United States um, forces assigned to NATO used Libya as a bombing range, okay? And Wheelis Air Force Base was an enormous American footprint in Libya. And the British had one as well, at at Al-Adam, And when uh, Gaddafi came to power in September 1969 with his Revolutionary Command Council, five years later, I had one of them as a student. He was older than I was there, taught me a lot. Uh, But I asked him, why did um, Gaddafi and the other free officers uh, overthrow the monarchy there? And they said it had all to do with Wheeler's Air Base, and the june 67 war the june 67 war the algerian jets came over libya en route to help uh, egypt to resist the israeli invasion of um, egypt uh, but the libyan commanders ordered all of the libyan officers and soldiers back into the barracks there and the aspect of wheelus had to do with the uh, the number two under Qaddafi for the longest time, Abdul Salam Jaloud, who, when he was 17 years old <coughs> and was with his buddy, walking along the Corniche in Tripoli, um, a, je- a jeep full of American enlisted men came by carousing on a Friday and threw out the back of the jeep a half-full can of Budweiser, and it came crashing into Jaloud's uh, best friend's eye which he lost. And Jalud took off after the the jeep and got the license plate and could identify the uh, American enlisted men in the jeep. Went and got his father, went and got his uncle. And they said, let's go to the magistrate. We, We got the goods on them. And the magistrate said, there's nothing we can do. We have a status of forces agreement with the United States. That was the first time Jalud and others had heard what is a status of forces agreement. Which meant that Americans could commit crimes in Libya, but they could not be crime, uh, tried by Libya's uh, system of jurisprudence. No reciprocity in terms of Libyans committing crimes in Baltimore. And he said this was what drove us uh, to overthrow the monarchy uh, there. So Libya is is an unknown in the United States, partly through the mercurial personality of its head of state, and. Also because of Pan Am 103, my wife knows that I was to be on Pan Am 103. I was on the list, had a reserve seat, but friends in Bahrain that year when the GCC summit was held there asked me to stay behind. And so I went the next day (laughs) on Pan Am 103. But um, that uh, aspect is uh, the prism or the keyhole through which so many Americans look, look at Libya. Uh, from the early years of Gaddafi, he was the cat's meow. Uh, he was able to get the government of Malta to stop allowing the resupply of Israel in conflicts with the Arab world from using Malta. And the Maltese, Prime Minister Dov Mintoff said, no one helped me more. To get out of that situation uh, than, than Libya. Secondly, Libya ran the organization of the Arab Petroleum uh, Arab Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries as the Secretary General for years, as the main think tank of, of uses to which uh, Arab uh, revenues from oil would happen. Thirdly, it was Gaddafi that went through southern Saharan Africa and got six African countries to break relations with Israel over the issue of, of Palestine. Uh, fourthly, it was Gaddafi in Libya that got Arabic to be recognized as one of the five languages accepted in the United Nations. And he did so by making it an issue. He took down all of the western uh, street signs <laughs> and, and replaced them with those in Arabic. And he, changed all of the visa forms to going to to Libya uh, from uh, English uh, to Arabic and saying, look, when we come to the United States, you make us fill out forms that are in English. When we drive around in American cities, uh, you have all the signs in a language that's not ours. So we're into the reciprocity game here. But all of those things were a long time ago. Well,
0: I know there are a number of issues and uh, matters that I'm going to have to rethink. And this has been thoroughly enjoyable. We like to think that, that everybody leaves satisfied, but I know a lot of you are frustrated that this can't go on longer. Thank you so much, John.